so apparently this can prevent suicide and many people can benefit from this. Many people listen to this in traffic. Many people listen to this on a daily basis. This big, huge, beautiful thing called music. Music can save so many lives and heal so many people from various things. On this episode with a very special guest called Music Heals You, we are going to be discussing the health benefits of music, how music correlates with health, which I found out years later. And we will be having a very special guest share their experience um, with music, helping other people, which I find very fascinating. And that will be a little bit later, but here's the intro. Welcome to the Avi Unfiltered Podcast. This is Avishai L, your host, holistic health coach and lifestyle expert. In this podcast, we're going to be interviewing top health experts, as well as talking to holistic healers, spiritual healers, and just helping you with everyday life. Each episode is going to be extremely fun. And as I always say, bring a green juice because it's going to be very juicy. My next guest is an award-winning advocate and teacher of music and self-care. He is a volunteer teacher using self-care tools with homeless and at-risk populations. He affirms that music heals is the best and is the best drug there is. Welcome Bill Protzman to the Avi Unfiltered podcast. Hey Avi, how's it going? Hey Bill, how's it going? <laughs> it's going <laughs> going good during this this it's, retrograde. It's- it's going by, like I'm sitting here and it's going by. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be motionless, you know, it's, it's like grounded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely have to stay grounded. Oh, yeah. 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 So how did you get involved with music? Well, mom was a piano teacher and you know how it is, like with your mom, right? There's no way that you cannot do what mom wants you to do when you're like three years old, which is when I started. And, oh, it was terrible. I, I mean, I learned all the stuff, and I was pretty good at it, but it wasn't satisfying in the way that by the time I was 9 or 10, I wanted to feel happy about. You know, my friends were outside playing sports, and, and I'm practicing the piano. So it, it took a while for the love to show up, but it stuck with me. You know, once it's inside you, you can't let it go. And when it grabbed me, when it finally came around, like, this is music, Bill. You can do this. People like it. Then everything shifted, and... Um, and it, and it sort of stuck with me ever since. I can't let it go. It's just part of what I do. It's part of my passion. That's amazing. So when you started out at three, did you start with the typical Suzuki method, or what did you start out with? Wow. Okay, so I'm a little bit older than that, but um, I think it was called the Francis Clark method back then. But it started, I mean, I remember the first piece I learned because it's so, it, it just, you know, it stays with you. You know how the piano has like two black notes and three black notes and two black notes and three black notes from one end to the other? Yes. And the first piece I learned was starting at the very lowest two black notes, left, right, left, right, left, right, all the way up to the top. And, you know, creative title for that piece is called Going Up. Yes, I still remember that too. And the second piece I learned was the same thing, going the other way, called Going Down. This is, honest to God, this is the truth. (laughs) And that was the best we had, you know, in the 60s. But later on, Mom became a Suzuki piano teacher. And um, my sister, who was a little younger than I, got the benefit of that. And we had 
well, you know how Suzuki is. You go to these amazing events where hundreds of kids play violins together, right? Right. Oh, my gosh. What an experience being able to watch that. Like as a high schooler, I was, I was observing that happening. And it, it's incredible. And mom, all the way through, still took little tiny kids and taught them the same way that she had taught me um, different music, but the same way. And it was amazing to watch these little kids, you know, do what they do. And mom was so skilled at that. So I, I love her for getting me started and for hanging in there until I figured out how fun it was. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome that you had a mom that, you know, instilled that within you and you ended up, you know, continuing it on into your adult years. It's true. And she still is there minding me today. There are things that come up and I just go, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, mom. So why did you come up with Music Care, Inc.? Great question. You know, music has this power and everybody says, oh, the power of music. And then we try to find an expert to give us the power of music. Like we listen to recordings of people who make amazing music and we go to music therapists who help us work out our stuff using music. And when you want to hear about why music is working, you find science on it and you read the science. And that's all great. But what if we could take all that information that's out there and relate it to what we already know inside about music? Like each of us has this resonance for music. It's just built in. It's what we do. And it doesn't matter if you play it. It's just we respond to sound and rhythm. So why not have an organized way of using the power of music on your own, a way that you can get into music at a level that really has amazing stuff for you, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's all in there. And music care is about teaching us how to do that. We all know this. It's sort of more like reminding us how to do this and remembering that we can engage with music and it does have these amazing results. It just seemed like it was something that needed to be done. Nobody else is out there doing it. They're all in the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, therapeutic relationship. The music therapist is the one-on-one. -on -one, um, it, it's a board-certified licensed position. In many states, you can get it covered by insurance. That's fantastic. But what if you could do that on your own? What if you could do it for yourself? And, and I believe you can, and musicians, of course, have been for a long time. So the purpose of music care is to raise awareness for what we really need to do better for ourselves. We take better care of ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That's what music care is all about. So is there a team that you work with in music care? Like what do you do specifically with that? Right, so um, I've only been doing this for about 10 years and nine of those years has been as a volunteer. So when it comes to enlivening other people and starting to build a team, my approach to that has been to reach out to podcast hosts, for example, anybody who's doing work in this space somewhere in the, in the spectrum of self-care, whatever that is, and enliven their practice with musical tools. Most of the time, as I said, it's just a reminder. It's like, hey, this does work, and here's how you can really access it. So I teach people who are already in the self-care and, and encouraging self-care people who want to do a modality to do this one, to do music as a modality, you know, in addition to things like tapping and uh, TRE, trauma release exercise, and then one of the most well-known holistic self-care methods out there right now is yoga and meditation, combining the, the preparation of the body through yoga for meditation, which stills the mind. So um, there's amazing practices. And adding music like more consciously to that, I think it's time we did that in America. It's, culturally, it's already there and present in many parts of the world, but here in the United States, not so much. We tend to still seek out the experts, and music for us is an experience of going to it rather than allowing it to come up from in, inside, from inside us, and to care for us that way. 
I think that's amazing. And um, as you were speaking, it reminded me of um, my college years during music education. And I'm sure you know, um, being a pianist, that it's it's rigorous in the music field and people really don't pay attention, in, in my case anyway, to the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual effects that um, a person is dealing with at the time when learning such an instrument in a rigorous field. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I completely agree. I was listening to the episode where you're talking about your music experience and how, and you know, the, the commitment that one has to bring to that to be anything like competent at your instrument, that's huge. But at the same time, while we're playing, all of these uh, effects of music that aren't necessarily consciously known to the public are part of what we do. And so I was growing up as a pretty depressed kid, and my job at the piano, just like your job at the violin, is to bring that emotional content through the music. And you can't do it if you can't feel it. So uh, fortunately, or for me, I guess, I had these big emotions and I found safety with them at the piano and I was able to make the music carry the emotional content that was inside me out into the performance, out into the audience. Um, and, and that's something that happens if you're any good at it, you know, any good at playing music, people get that. They respond to that emotional content as opposed to like a computer playing the music back. The emotional content may not be there at the same level. So when we're doing that as musicians, we're also giving ourselves care. It, it's difficult to go that deep in emotions. Most, your average bear doesn't do that. But musicians are trained to do that in a way. And we also have built into the performance of the practice of music, the things that care for us to allow us to do that in safety. And yeah, it's still hard. I mean, <laughs> uh, musicians are, 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 by and large have this reputation of being sort of, you know, artsy out there, people that are maybe not quite stable. I mean, it, it's it's <laughs> this thing. And I just own that because that's the thing that allows it to happen. That's the thing that really makes it work, you know? So I don't mind being depressed because I know that it's part of the process. I don't mind dealing with traumatic memory. I know that's part of the process. We're here to grow, right? So why not use that stuff and grow with it? I don't mind being happy. You know, that's amazing. What a great thing to do after you've gone through the, you know, the dark journey, whatever the music might be. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because the goal is, you know, there's a lot of people who are just like very on the positive side, you know, and I always say you can't have too much. You can't be too positive and you can't be too negative. There has to be some sort of a balance. And I right. all it in like you've been watching the the episodes. I always talk about positively negative because you you have to work with your shadow sides. Just like you said, you know, you're fine with being depressed and you're fine because, you know, you have to go through those things. You know, every day is not going to be good. You have to let those emo you have to feel those things to. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You have to feel, you know, we have to feel people <laughs> and yeah. and let it move through you. You don't have to stay depressed, of course, but you have to acknowledge, hmm, this is coming from some place. Where is it coming from? Let me resolve it. And like I say, you know, you're in you're in the health field as well because music is healing. We're constantly healing. Yeah. 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 And, and we're called to do. I mean, human beings have this emotional ability to respond to things, whatever they are, whatever triggers they are, we have this ability to respond to them. And our mindset for I don't know how long has been to just sort of stuff the emotions we don't like. And I mean, you, whatever the power of positive thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, 
Well, that's fine, but you can't drag around a big tank full of big emotions that are unresolved. It, it doesn't serve us. And so to change that mindset and say, hey, let's let some of that stuff out before it you know, breaks things and hurts people, that's a good idea, people. <laughs> it's a really good idea. I mean, look around. Look at where we've gotten us. Uh, look at all the anger on social media. I mean, don't, but you know what? It's out there, and, and we don't need that. But we've gotten there because we've been stiff upper lipping it for such a long time and not realizing there's a lot of beauty and, by the way, a built-in ability for us to, first of all, accept the deep emotion without judgment and let it flow through you instead of just tamping it down or trying not trying to pretend it didn't happen. And, and that practice is, is key here. Once we can change that, things are going to, the whole thing is going to shift. You know, when, when we allow emotions freely, not to act out on them, but to feel them, to resonate with them. It's like a guitar. If you took away the soundboard, you wouldn't hear the dang thing. Put the soundboard back in. It's like put, it's giving yourself that emotional experience again. It, it enriches everything about life. And there's nothing to be afraid of there. I mean, it's, yeah, the first time you feel something that deeply, that could be profound. But it's not going to hurt you. It's there for a reason. It's there to, to, to open up something about you that you didn't know. And you won't know any other way except by experiencing the feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. You get huge breakthroughs that way. So is, yeah. is music care the same as music therapy? Oh, great question. So uh, music therapists are board certified, licensed, often advanced degrees, um, working within a framework of clinical care. And that could be within a clinic or it could be individually, like a one-on-one -on -one therapeutic relationship. Um, music therapists often do things like drum circles and whatever. Those are great too. But guess what? So much of that is just the common practice of music. And if you look at other cultures where music is present all the time and people are singing all day long and then after dinner they drum together and it's like this is, this is the way that things work there, that is music care. So that's music where you don't need a therapist, you're just using music as an individual practice for behavioral health care or emotional health care or mental acuity or to connect to something spiritual, the other, God, the universe, whatever, consciousness, whatever does it for you, music opens that up too. And um, I want to say this because it's important. Music therapy, the practice of music therapy is informed by lots of research, lots of science behind music right now. And the American Music Therapy Association documents all of that stuff and they produce a journal of it and you can read the clinical applications and research that's going on with music in places like autism and um, dementia, Alzheimer's, end-of-life care, all of that is sort of researched on a scientific, medical, psychological basis. But that's the tip of the iceberg. And if we were to roll forward a couple hundred years, you'd see music therapists practicing things like how to connect people to God, the power of music that science can evaluate and measure for us hasn't caught up with how powerful music is. And I, I like to uh, offer evidence of that for thousands of years of music practice. And you know, I mean, you can even read about music being used in the Bible, but it's part of the way that Sufis spin, whirling dervishes spin to music. And that music is there for a reason. It's there to help us connect to the other, to something bigger than just the problems of today. So um, science will eventually catch up with what we musicians already know. And there's no reason why anyone can not engage with music at some level for benefit, for therapy, on their own. So that's the impotence behind music care, a self-care tool, a real life 
you know, evidence-based holistic self-care tool. Not like getting your nails done or seeing the chiropractor. That's good uh-huh. care too. But this is something that you can use as a practice to keep yourself healthy and sane and uh, in the game and, you know, give yourself relaxation when you need it. We all know about that. Upregulate, downregulate. It's, it's fascinating to say that there's something this powerful that's right there available no side effects, you know, it won't, it's not, there's no black box warning on music. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not going to be an opioid crisis, people. It's going to be something much better. Now, question for you, because years back, you, you mentioned holistic. Um, I remember I was getting my certification in holistic health coaching, and we were doing some sort of exercises to how you would introduce ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I was a holistic violinist and health coach and you know the person teaching the teacher asked me she was like how does that relate to health do you think that those two tie in together I'm laughing right now (laughs) 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 what did you say (laughs) yes (laughs) I I would challenge somebody like that to show say show me how they don't yeah um one of the practices that science has, quote, discovered for us is this thing called EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, big, long mouthful. But it basically means that if you can get the left and right hemispheres of your brain talking more rapidly than normal, like if you can somehow trigger that to happen, um, then you can release trauma. You can release traumatic memory. You can do all kinds of like mental work happens in this place. So one of the, to get those left and right things going, they use eye movement. So you look left, look right, look left, look, look right, following a light bar. But you can do this like tapping on each shoulder, left and right shoulder. That'll create the bilateral stimulation that is part of EMDR. I'm tapping so, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So guess what we do as musicians, if, especially if you're like a drummer? Left, right, left, right, left, right, all day long. At the piano, left, right, left, right. You're doing the same thing when, when you're w- with, between bowing and, and fingering. You're doing the same thing, left, right, left, right. And it creates, like, music is all about bilateral stimulation, the Absolutely. process of making it, right? So I was in trauma therapy, and, I, and we were doing EMDR, and the therapist had headphones on, and the music in them was orbiting left, right, left, right, left, right. There's no talking in EMDR. You just bring up a traumatic memory and hold it in your head while the bilateral stim happens. And science can't explain it, but what happens is the negative charge leaves the memory, and the memory then becomes sort of uh, not a friendly memory, but it becomes a non-charged memory. And you just go, oh, yes, that happened to me, and I felt that terrible trauma, but now I'm, the memory is somehow free of that traumatic charge. Amazing work. So I'm doing this, and I'm sitting there, and, and you know, eyes closed, and the therapist is sitting there, and the music is happening, and I'm remembering this traumatic memory. I forget what it was. And all of a sudden, my eyes open, my jaw drops, and I thought, you will not believe the insight that I just had. And the therapist said, what? I said, well, I've been playing the piano since I was three. The first song I learned was left, right, left, right, left, right, all the way up the piano. And second song was left, right, left, right, all the way down. Actually, it's right, left, right, left, all the way down. I've been doing EMDR without knowing that it was called this or anything else for as long as I've been playing the piano. And her jaw dropped. So I think that part of what science has helped us to understand is the power of that bilateral stimulation, which we can now go and pay therapists to give us <laughs> EMDR, right? Right. Or you can do it yourself just by tapping on your shoulders, left and right, or, or drumming or slapping your knees or whatever it is. There it is. Boom. EMDR. You need a musical practice? Great. Pick up a drum. Do that. If you haven't got a drum, 
tap on your shoulders, you know, whatever, and then let it work for you. Aren't these amazing tools? And yet science wants to tell you that only experts can administer them. Like, well, no, dude. You know, look at yeah. any musician out there. And it, once you connect with that understanding and realize what's going on, you get curious and you want to go deeper, right? And that's what we need as artists and musicians. We need to go deeper. We need to find the stuff that people haven't seen yet. Deep dive into the well and bring back the golden coins that are down there. You can do that with EMDR. And, uh, you know, it can be scary. I'll be honest with you. It can be scary. Um, we know lots of artists and musicians who haven't survived that process. But they've left us with amazing stuff anyhow. And um, you know, I, I've come close to not wanting to breathe anymore myself, and music has, re has resolved that for me. But isn't this incredible that science is now just figuring out one little tiny aspect of what musicians have done for thousands of years? Since we started banging on logs, we've been giving ourselves EMDR, man. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah, music has been here. It's an ancient practice, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It even sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And it's enjoyable and, and, you know, all of that too. So, yeah. Wow. Was that, a, was that all about music therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Where did we start with that? No, that's good. No, music therapy is, is necessary. It definitely is. I wanted to ask you, um, how can music help someone with suicide? Oh, gosh. Uh, wow. We're taking sort of a dark turn here, but that's okay. I mean, <laughs> It's important. People need to understand that, yeah, suicide is tough, but it's stigmatized. And the more we discuss it, honestly and frankly, I think the better it is. Um, suicide's a symptom of something else. It's, it's like the last symptom of unresolved stuff. And um, a friend of mine who took his own life never talked about it with any of us. And when I was close to taking my own life, I started to understand that. Because when you're that close to wanting to end it all, it doesn't matter if there's a suicide hotline or that you have friends or a therapist you could call. You just don't want to do any of that. It's just like you, you shut down and isolate and, and cut off from the world. And I think it's tragic that that happens. But in our land of rugged individualism, there, we haven't really opened the, the door for a conversation around suicide. And once you do that, and the that you can learn there's actually you can get training called uh, mental health first aid from behavioral health uh, association or you can get qpr question persuade refer counties teach these things and it's free you can learn how to do this stuff but basically all of it is just about opening a conversation about encouraging regular people to look into the eyes of someone that they care for and say hey is everything all right you've been talking a lot about things that scare me can is there anything that i can do as a friend to be there for you in some way that you need. And, and often just asking that question is enough to get to the real issue that's underlying whatever is causing suicidal ideation. And it's a, it's a great practice. When I found myself in that place and shut off from the world, um, I felt like I'd just done it all and there wasn't anything more that I really needed to do in, in life. You know, kids were raised and launched and everything was basically great. I mean, I, I just felt empty. Like, what in the world am I going to do? And it wasn't like I wasn't doing anything. I had shows planned, and I, you know, I was active. I was doing stuff. But I just felt, you know, what's the point? Why, why do this? I, I feel like I'm complete. And instead of, you know, finding a gun or reaching for a rope, I decided to listen to some music that I love just one more time, maybe before it was all over, and, and let that music work on me and, and bring me 
whatever it was that I needed. I've, I've, I've been doing this practice for a while, so oftentimes when I listen to music, it's with an open mind rather than with a specific purpose. And that particular evening, I just sat in the chair and put on the song that I love, put it on repeat, and allowed it to work on me. And what happened was I started to weep, oddly enough. You know, <laughs> being someone who's dealt with depression all my life, that wasn't too surprising, but it felt different. I, There was something more profoundly, um, I, I don't want to say depressed, but sad, I think, more, more profoundly sad. I just never felt that sad before. And um, as I sat there in the chair and wept and let the music play, I just, I, I couldn't stop weeping. It was just like that. And I don't know, I, I sat in the chair early evening, it was still light outside, and, and at one point, um, hours later, I woke up. I just, I had, I'd fallen asleep, the music was still playing in my headphones. I woke up, and you know what? I've never felt so awake. It was like, wow, I'm awake. And there was no other, I mean, I, and I deal with suicide all the time, but th that evening, the notion of taking my own life had completely gone. And I think that the point of that was that I allowed whatever it was that was triggering the suicidal thing to come up and to release it. The music helped me release it. And I can't even say that there's like an intellectual component to that, but there's definitely an emotional component. And I needed that emotional bath. I needed that hours of crying and just falling into sleep to let that stuff go. And, and it did. And um, I went to bed, got up the next day, and this amazing song just kind of appeared. Like I felt like I was transcribing it. The lyrics show. The voices in my head were lyrics that morning. I wrote them down, and it was a it was song. And then the music came, and I wrote that down. And and by noon, I had this entire piece of music, and it actually solved a big problem for me because <laughs> the show that I was preparing had gotten to a pretty deep point in the show musically, and I needed to turn the corner. And the song that hit me that morning was the song that turned the corner. And I don't sing, but I've performed that thing in public a few times. And, and it's, it's so cathartic to tell the story and introduce the music and, um, and then actually perform it, which is crazy for me. But um, that's, that's sort of the, the moment at which things turned around. And I really got committed to bringing this, the, the science of music to people in a way that everyone can use by themselves, like on their own and do things. So that was a really important moment. I still think about suicide, and I, I deal with people who are um, who are thinking about it as well. I ran a group, a meetup group for people who think about suicide a lot for a while, and it was a great group. We had some amazing people there, but the the longer the group progressed, <laughs> the, the symptoms all lessened. So it was like running a meetup for people that you really don't want to see there because if they're doing okay, they won't come to the group. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, right. Right. Now, that moment when you were listening to the music and it helped you get out your feelings, I wonder if you were also going through a spiritual awakening. Oh, I, ha I think I had to, yes. Um, there's no way to isolate the effect of music. So it's working on you, like in that case, emotionally. But those, there's also the physical component where you get relief from stress, in my case, that night. Or you get um, like the mental clarity. Good heavens. I mean... I had no idea I was going to write a song the next day. And then, of course, there's that spiritual connection where I felt, yes, there's a purpose. There's, there's meaning. I belong to something important. You know, all of those sort of attributes of spirituality 
flooded into me as well. So yeah, there's, there's no way to just be isolated about it. If you're working with someone on a physical pain issue and you give them music, it's also going to help them mentally, emotionally, and spirit, spiritually, maybe in ways they don't know, but it's working. Yeah. You can't just say, oh no, this is, it's, it's not like aspirin. <laughs> it just doesn't work on one thing. Right. It's holistic in that sense. It, it covers the whole thing, the whole, the whole spectrum. Exactly. So what made you switch from music as entertainment to music for healing? Uh, <laughs> I still do both. Okay. There's a component of music that's so much fun. It, it, you can't deny it. And um, one of the songs that I play often is a song called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. And you might know this. Yes. It's, it can be played on any instrument. For, it, for those who haven't heard it, John Cage was this marvelous... A whimsical but very brilliant composer. Um, I guess middle, maybe mid 1900s ish until late 1900s. And four minutes and 33 seconds uh, is a piece of music. And the instructions to the performer are to um, to assume the position, whatever that might be, to play your instrument, and then simply to sit there for four minutes and 33 seconds. So the music is what happens in the room. You're just not making any sound as part of it. Right. And it's amazing to play this because it gets people out of their space. Sometimes people laugh. I've had people walk out. Um, people uh -huh. are always coughing, <clears throat> you know, or op opening the candy or whatever, trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's designed to get people off their space, right, to, to, to bust them out of whatever paradigm they're in and open them up to the fact that music is happening like all around us, sounds, rhythms, even if it's in a quiet concert hall. <laughs> and that's great fun. I mean, as a performer, I, I have to chuckle and do that stuff. <laughs> there are times, you know, where you, I, I love to play with people. If you're playing a song everybody knows, like Furleys or The Entertainer or something, and then hit one note wrong every time you hear it. <laughs> and you can get inside people's heads with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, so cynical. <laughs> I love I know, it. I love it. I know. <laughs> But if you do it with intent and you supply the right comedic effect for it, then people really get it. And it's so much fun to do that. So, yeah, yeah it's still there. Um, entertainment is a great way of getting inside um, and getting inside yourself and being able to unlock what's in there that might need a little nudge. And uh, it, so I, I still entertain with music because it's so much fun to do that and show people how they can use it to entertain others as well. Like, here's this great song. Try this. And then those people go off and they'll try it with their friends or whatever. And they'll come back and say, you can't believe what happened, Bill. I'm like, okay, tell me. <laughs> tell me how it went. So where do you, <clears throat> what places do you perform? Oh, great, great question. I've been doing um, a lot less actual performance, like me and a grand piano kind of performance in the last 10 years. But I have been doing a lot of performing where I can bring the piano on stage and then use it as part of the tool part of the speech, part of whatever to show by example how things work. So um, you'll see me doing that for groups who want to have a bigger experience of music care. Um, it looks like a, a speech or a workshop, but it's actually a, a, a loosely veiled performance that people can get into. I had the opportunity to do one of those recently, and uh, it was around the time that Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee. And so I used all patriotic music and talked to people about how we were responding to patriotic music these days and, and how complicated that is and all the crazy emotions that are packed into the Star Spangled Banner these days. So uh, it, it's great fun to do that in, in a way that allows people to have a, a, like another road in to music that we've all just sort of heard for a long time. 
and find some new meaning in that. And actually, in many ways, connect with one another around that new meaning or that forgotten meaning in some cases. So that's where you'll find me performing. I've got some stuff online, of course. Everybody's got albums out there. I do, too, on YouTube and Spotify and iTunes or whatever it's called these days. And, um, yeah, it, so there's there's content out there. I'm looking forward to doing more of that. I, I kind of miss performing. It's been about 10 years since I did the last, like, concert performance that I did. And, and I want to do more because it's, I miss it. It's fun. I, and it's time. You know, time to get back out there and and be crazy on stage again. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I can totally relate to the the ten years or not performing in such a long time. What I was gonna um, say: Do you accompany people? Oh, I do. Yeah, <laughs> one of the shows I was doing uh, way back in the day with a, a friend of mine from UCI, who was a soprano, a, a, a actual operatic soprano, but she had a sense of humor. And she could do impressions. And our show together was me accompanying her and her doing opera in English, um, sometimes with comedy, sometimes with pathos. So she does O Mio Babino Caro, that wonderful song from, uh, what was it, A Room with a View. It's been in everything. And you recognize it the moment you hear it. Yeah. And we would do that sort of straight. But then other stuff we'd do, she, um, she did a Carol Burnett impersonation to an aria from something or another. And she sang Queen of the Night, which is a monstrous piece by Mozart, incredibly difficult to play, let alone sing. But we had this show called Diva, and it was great fun. People would, would laugh and cry. We did the whole emotional range, costumes, the whole thing. And I did shtick between the pieces so that Susan could change clothes. You can see that online, too. There's some clips from that, including one of me singing a duet with her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to and look that operatic up. Duet. Yeah, you can find it out there. And and when you find it, I won't spill the beans yet, but uh, when you find it, you'll probably know it because it's one that's done frequently by people in such situations, like as an encore or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> duetto, du, du, let's see, make get this right. Um, duetto, duo de buffo, gatti, something like that. You know, I'll find it and put it in the show notes. It's the Italian name for it. Um, if you can, if you know Italian, sort of gives it away, <laughs> but it's great fun. So yeah, I've done a bunch of that. Nice. If I ever need an, a, a pianist to accompany me, <laughs> I will oh, reach yeah, out to you. Shout. Yeah, that would be great fun. That would be. As my, I, I, I might do that. I might do that. Whenever I'm led to do it, my spirit has to guide me. Whenever it's time, definitely will reach out to you for that. Oh, I'd be honored. Thank you. Yeah. So what drives your compassion for people? Oh, sheer necessity. <laughs> <laughs> Some people I don't mean, have compassion, you know. I know. Yeah. I, believe me. And, and I hate to say it this way, but you can tell how compassionate someone is by how they vote. And, and I know that it's hard to bring up politics, but isn't that a great place for people who want to practice right now? I don't vote because I'm out of the system, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and, and you know what? I respect that. But look around. I mean, any public figure these days is a great place to, to start your compassion practice or to extend it if you've already got one. Right. And um, I, I guess that my compassion really began to explode when I volunteered with at-risk people for the first time about 10 years ago, working with homeless people and veterans who are in recovery, and many cases blown up and suffering from traumatic memory. And uh, you get compassionate real quick, especially when you find that you have a connection. And because I do music and I'm offering music care to people that I'm volunteering with, 
our connection over music sort of takes the place of all the issues. And the issues become secondary to what we're doing together musically. And in that place, it becomes very easy to practice compassion. It's, it's more difficult to empathize. I've never been blown up in combat, so I have a tough time empathizing with folks who have, but I certainly admire and respect them when they are making an effort to, to change and do something good with that experience. So um, it, it's easy to practice compassion when you're in a place that you can relate to one another closely, and, and music opens up that potential. So slightly less, <laughs> slightly less challenging in that environment than to look around and like read the news and figure out how you can be compassionate for what's happening in the world. But it is doable, um, and, and I believe it's really necessary. So what drives it? Golly, we need to make a change here, people. And if we can make one tiny little change, one tiny little bit of difference, and if that's offering compassion to someone who doesn't see the, see the same way you do about an issue, that's a great start. I like to... Um, to think about a hypothetical for this, where if you're sitting across from your enemy who doesn't speak your language and you put on music, uh, that's going to change both of you in the same way. It might make you smile, make, might make you frown, but when you allow the music to be the content of the meeting, it will change even when you have an enemy across the, across the table from you. It'll change you and, and allow you to have a place where you can connect as humans. That's compassionate work. And do we ever need that right now? We really do. Right. I'm glad you actually differentiated compassion and empathy because, you know, when someone when someone passes away and you don't necessarily know the person, like say you have a friend and their, I don't know, their dog or their cat passed away, they're really close to their dog or their cat. You may not empathize because you didn't lose your cat. But just having compassion for that person is extremely important. And I think sometimes people, there are some people that have compassion like you, like myself. But I think some people think that empathy and compassion are the same thing. Like you don't need to empathize to have compassion. And I think that's where that's where the heartlessness comes in because people just shut it off completely because yeah. they can't empathize, if that makes sense to you. <laughs> No, it totally does. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to know what it's like to be blown up in combat, I right. hope. <laughs> right, yeah. So so being able to stand in someone else's shoes, it, it's really difficult. I mean, you can sort of see their point of view, but to feel the whole thing, um, it you have to be invited in to have empathy, right? Um, you can have compassion at sort of a distance, like I can feel compassion for for people who are losing their lives in the world now because of war, I can feel compassion for that. Never having lost my life because of war, if someone, if a survivor or a refugee came to me and said, Bill, I lost my family in that conflict, and I just feel so empty right now, that's an invitation for empathy. Because I know what it's like to feel empty. I don't know what it's like to lose my family, but I can relate to that person on the level of their emptiness. I've been pretty, pretty low in my life, and that's something that we share. And if you're invited to to connect with that, that's where the gate for empathy opens up. You can't come and empathize somebody, right? You can't come and compassion somebody. I'm going to compassion you. <laughs> I'm going to empathy. I'm going to empathize you. It, it's not like that. Um, it it re requires a connection first. And even if that connection is far away in the other part of the world, there's still an opening for compassion. But when it comes home to you. 
your significant other comes home and says, you can't believe the day I had. I just feel so low right now. Just hold me. That's empathy. But yeah. that, that invitation has to come. Um, you have to build your creds, right? You, before a person's going to come and open up to you that way, you kind of have to build your relationship to a place where um, empathy is allowed. And, and I have great respect for people who are trying this because we, we all think that empathetic leadership is a good thing. But an empathetic leader has to know the people that are relying on them as a leader. They have to get underneath the hood and kind of figure out what's happening in there. Otherwise, they won't be able to practice empathy. It, it'll be blocked. Um, and I have great compassion for people who think they're empathetic leaders. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that takes work. And, and there are leaders that are empathetic. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of one right now. Maybe Martin Luther King is the first one that comes to mind. Um, I think he could really empathize with the people that he was leading. He really got it. They really got him. That was real empathy in, in practice. Um, we don't see that too much anymore. I mean, maybe in small ways we do. Certainly there must be churches where the leader really gets the, the congregation in a way that, it, that goes beyond just being a figurehead, you know, that's actually a, a, a relationship thing. But at the top of my head, I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with any. <laughs> our, our world really needs this. And, and to invite that, that connection, well, rugged individualism hasn't got us there. Uh, look at where we are right now. We don't have the most empathetic world, but the, the potential's there. We've certainly taken this individualism thing about as far as it can go without opening up to empathy and, and the awareness of it, people who want it. They, it's like food, you know, we've been living on this one diet for a long time and now we're realizing we're a little bit deficient. We've got to open up the, the possibility for other nutrition, for other ways to come in and mind us. Empathy, I think, is right there on the horizon, calling to all of us. We just have to figure out how to practice that. Music can open it for you. Right, exactly. Now, you mentioned briefly about um, some techniques that you use to help people with um, suicide and other things. Are there any other techniques that help with other specific issues, other music well, techniques? This is a question with a lot of insight. Uh, yes, there are. I think the basic overarching uh, learning that we all need is, first of all, to allow us ourselves to feel and then to allow music to mind us in those moments where we feel deeply, the big emotions are the hardest ones, and to allow music to come in on those is the, the overarching practice. Now, what are those? So that's where it gets interesting. My particular issues are depression. Um, other people might have particular issues with fear. So we have to dig into those and find music that is individual to both of us that we love. And that music can be engaged to help us pass through the depression or help us pass through the fear or whatever the trigger might be. Um, there's lots of depression and stress and anxiety in the world, not clinical, but it's out there and it's, it's taking our energy in ways that we don't like. What are the components of that for each of us that we can unpack with music? It's sort of soundtrack to music, but I like to call it more of a silver bullet playlist. What's the music that allows us to be with depression, to be with fear, to be with anxiety, another kind of fear? Um, what's that music? And that's individual for you, it's individual for me. Once you've identified that music, you can engage with it in a way that gives you a satisfying experience 
I know this is crazy, but a satisfying experience of depression, a satisfying experience of fear or anxiety. Why satisfying? Because like in that in the chair that night, once you allow the music to let the emotion flow, it leaves you. It's you're done with that and you move on to the next emotion. And that is a beautiful thing. So that component of sort of finding the music to mind you in your in the place you need is the biggest single thing that you can do as an individual to to begin to have a practice of music care. Okay, so as they continue, that's that's excellent that you, you know, encourage people to feel because you have to recognize that there's something that needs to be felt in order for you to progress, which brings me to my next question. Like, how do you progress someone after they can feel these emotions? What other, what progressive exercises do you do with them? Yeah, so the, the beautiful thing about allowing yourself to feel something is that when it is complete, you're kind of in a neutral moment where you can choose what to feel next. Hmm. And that can be very powerful because if depression, like for me, was so present that it immobilized me, it was important for me to allow that to come up and then to be open to the next thing. And the next thing kind of grabbed me. The voices in my head are always talking. Unless I'm playing music or listening to it, they're talking. So allowing that depression to go through kind of changed the conversation, if you will. And the next time the voices began to talk, they had something for me. And I was open to that. So being being fully present and that mindfulness thing, all of that, that's that's great. But I like to talk about it as being in the moment. Music will put you in the present moment like nothing else that we have. It, it just does that. And in that moment where you can allow things, once they're done, and you know when they're done, you know when you're finished laughing, you know when you're finished crying. I mean, you, you, you get that. We just, that's how we're laid out. We, we actually complete an emotion if we allow it to complete. And then in that beautiful neutral space where you're ready to jump off in any direction, you're like a tennis player about to return the serve or a dancer who's centered and ready to move, um, you, you have a choice. And if the next thing that you need to feel is task-related, then you, you go with that task. The next thing you need to feel is completely up to you and you want to feel joy, hey, let's play some happy music. But that receptivity that a full experience of emotion gives you for the next one, that's the practice. That's really the practice. And, of course, it's the music you love. So science is the music you love is the most powerful for you. Pick the next thing that you want to feel out of your top 40 and go that direction. And with practice, this can become something that, like musicians we know, once you put it into muscle memory, it's available to you anytime you need it. This is the putting it into like your holistic system memory. Once you've built that practice, it becomes a natural thing to say, oh gosh, I just have to sit with this for a minute. It's really gotten me. And then when the music is done, you choose the next music and you're up and ready to go again for whatever the next again looks like for you. Right. And and you mentioned, I wanted to ask you to mention, I said you dimensioned, you mentioned. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> not right for this week. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned you've been depressed and lonely for most of your life. Is is that something that you just felt or something, a specific thing happened for you to feel that way? I think it's probably just, you know, part of what makes me run. Um, my willingness to be with big emotions has been a component of that. And I, I think looking back on it now, yeah, I was pretty chronically depressed. 
and I, I'm not, I don't fit into any particular box. I defy categorization in so many ways that over the course of years, I've kind of been, become comfortable with that. It's like, yeah, that's me. I, I really am this outlier, and I really do feel things enormously. Emotion is part of who I am, and I'm open to that now. Rather than resisting it, you know, as I was as a teenager, for example, where you don't understand anything, but you think you do, and yet you have these big feelings, and you don't know what to do with them. So it, the progression of life has helped me become comfortable with that in, in a way, not that it identifies me. You know, that's the tough thing, too, because you get a diagnosis, and then, oh, now you're bipolar, whatever it is. No, no. Those are symptoms of stuff that's beautiful and authentic about you that you can use. The guy that helped me start uh, the Katarashvets chapter here in San Diego was bipolar and homeless, living on the street as a parolee. He was amazing and did incredible stuff on the upside. And um, he told me a couple of times, he said, Bill, the, the only thing that really gets me through the downside is like hanging out with you and doing this music thing we do. And that's beautiful. You know, I've never ever thought of him as a bipolar person. I thought of him as a human person with some incredible emotional range who's able to do amazing work, just have to be in a place where that's understood maybe, you know, where you can really get to empathy with somebody like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel big emotions, they don't define me, and at times in my life they've been pretty scary. But here I am, you know, with all of that, and glad to be here, and happy to talk about it. You know, I, I don't feel any shame or stigma from having come close to suicide or being chronically depressed or, <laughs> In one case, I was given a, I actually had to pay for a psychological test and um, a bunch of questions. And the therapist who was guiding me through it uh, got the results back and said, Bill, I have to ask you because they, the people who scored the test are concerned that some of your answers don't fit. You know, they didn't fit within the categorization. And that didn't surprise me, being someone who's okay not being in the box. And she asked me to re-answer about a half dozen questions. And after I'd done that, she said, well, you gave the same answers as you did when you took the test, so the results must be accurate. And what had happened was that there's this continuum of like emotional range from depressed to schizophrenic. And I'd busted the scale at both ends. And Abby, they, they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I had, I had proof that I don't fit in the box. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and, and you know, it, you get comfortable with this. It's tough. Um, there is, however, an, an invitation, even for people who are way on the far outside, as you know, um, to belong more fully to the world and to do what we do in a way that enlivens other people in the world and brings them along with us to a new place. So it, it's not like being in the box would have helped me. And it's not like sort of being having, a, having had a normal childhood or whatever would have helped me. The things that help me are the things that happen. And at some point when it all comes together and you go, aha, oh my gosh, what a magical moment. And, and that's happened for me several times throughout life. It happens more frequently the older I get. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to be here, glad not to fit in, and um, happy to help encourage people who are struggling with fitting in to be okay not fitting in because your incredible gifts may be necessary and may not fit in a box. 
Exactly. I, I've, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've struggled with that. Like in my, when I was, well, as you heard, I was fired from my job. I was like, okay, now what am I going to do? And I recognized I had all these different talents and all these different interests. And I tried to categorize myself, not realizing that, like you just said, you don't fit in what you do is outside of the box. They, maybe they don't go together, but if that's what you love doing, just, you know, do it. But I always had to like, I tried to stick with one thing and focus on that one thing, and I was ignoring everything else. Yeah, it just doesn't work. But you're a living, breathing miracle of what happens if you do it Avi's way. Oh, thank you. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and the fact that you want to teach other people how to do it based on what you've experienced and known is is phenomenal. And, and world, if you're listening, uh, do more of that because – there are a lot of opportunities right now. Oh my gosh, there is so much screwed up stuff that's ripe for solutions. And uh, yeah, and you're bringing it, you know? Yeah. It's amazing what you've done in just a short period of time and you're still alive, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right? thank you, yeah. Seriously, I mean, people listen to this. This is, this is golden stuff. So um, yeah, so stay outside the box. In fact, I don't try to resist anymore. I just sort of, I'm comfortable being, oh, yeah, I'm the guy who doesn't quite fit into anyone's box. And and that's fine. That's awesome. It's totally cool. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, which is um, talking about your book, More Than Human. Oh, golly. So um, like you, I'm sort of a renaissance person and love to do a lot of things. And at one point well, when I was volunteering, I was working with a collaborative of people who are interested in serving veterans more fully. And one of the ways that veterans um, feel injured is morally. Moral injury is a big thing. I mean, if you grow up in the Christian tradition, for example, and you're taught that killing is wrong, and then you're sent overseas to break things and kill people, um, there's a moral uh, problem that occurs there. Because what you believe and what you have to do are two different things suddenly. And that injury is one that's, that's, you know, that causes people a lot of pain. Anytime you have to do something that, you, that where your beliefs don't match your actions and you do it intentionally, that's a big problem. So uh, the Army recognized, U.S. Army recognized that this problem exists and that they wanted to do something to address it. And how could they do that, you know, not to tell people that killing is right, but to help people engage with their human spirit in a way that allowed them to be spiritually ready for the work that they had to do, which is terrible work, but it's necessary. And um, so the Army basically said, okay, we've, we're going to have to do this. We make sure the human spirit is as ready as our, we are physically, mentally, and emotionally to cross the wire and do our job. And um, there's, there was a study, and there was you know, PhD-type people working on this. And what they discovered was that there are ways of acting that, are, that come from our human spirit. And we all know what they are. They're things like kindness and gratitude and respect and honor and you know, even more complicated ones like um, – like clear thinking. I mean, we don't like to use the word discrimination anymore, so I like to call it discretion. But certainly these things are are part of the best parts of us versus the not best parts of us. And in business, they've discovered that things like gratitude and kindness really help businesses do much better than the competitors who don't practice gratitude and kindness, for example. Um, that's an important realization and while I thank the Army for doing it, I realize that also in the Army, that this means that they're open to dealing with moral injury. 
well, the little group we were working on was trying to figure this out. And uh, the, the governing board of the organization at some point said, oh, you know what, we're going to leave the spiritual stuff aside for now and just focus on the more practical things like homelessness and finding jobs. So the group disbanded, but not the idea. And the idea became this book that's a short guide for how you and an organization can enliven your human spirit practices, practical spirituality. How can you take an organization that isn't practicing gratitude and turn it into an organization that does? What were the practices? What are the processes you'd put in place to make that happen? Um, and, you know, it comes from things like mission statements and all that. It's a bunch of business stuff. But at, at the core of it, it's turning up your compassion, turning up your empathy, and finding ways to do that. Well, of course, I know <laughs> that music is one of those great ways. <laughs> so exactly, this has come more than human. It's sort of become a companion book to the work that I do with music. Because once you're done with remediation, like once you're done with figuring out how to deal with stress, depression, and anxiety, it's important to know that that's not it. There's more, right? You can find music that enlivens empathy. You really can. You can find music that enlivens respect. Uh, if discretion is one of those things that's part of your job, that takes a really interesting combination of mental and emotional awareness to be able to bring, um, bring insight to problem solving in a way that doesn't hurt people, you know? It's really easy to make a choice to like launch a social media platform where anybody can do anything and it's all great, but uh oh, we forgot about privacy. Somebody wasn't thinking with discretion <laughs> back in the day, right? And yeah. now we have to unwind from that. So these are practices that can be enlivened by music and they're all talked about in some, not all of them, there's so many. I've, I've only listed about 50 of them in the book but it's important to know that they're there and that if you do them, that gives you an edge. And it's such a beautiful edge. I mean, when you talk to somebody on the phone and they're kind to you at the call center, even though you've got this terrible problem that they can't fix and your Wi-Fi's down, their kindness makes all the difference. You know, um, that's an important component of a successful business. But if the business ignores that, and you call up and the call center is just mean, <laughs> which happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the last thing you want to have to do is change your cellular service or Wi-Fi in the middle of a project where it's important to have consistency. And, of course, those poor people, I really empathize with you, Bill. And I'm like, no, you really don't because you have no idea what it's like to not have exactly. internet service True. in your business right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said that, you know, it's because it's encouraging people to a higher – so, anyway, long story, but more than human – is a short book about how to do that better and why it's so important to do it and how it can come from an authentic place that isn't that hard to find inside you. And where can people find this awesome book? Oh, Amazon, of course. Uh, I know. I, I really do. I get it. But one of the wonderful things about Amazon is how easy it is to be able to grab stuff and, and just, you know, use it. And I'm not talking about stuff because everybody you know has to have furniture and whatever amazon sells which is practically everything but the knowledge that's available there it's amazon's become this catalog of what we're thinking these days it's true somebody said like ten thousand books a week or something are published that's crazy that is but that's people who are really dedicated to to elevating the conversation absolutely and getting people to think and awaken uh, absolutely so closing question for you how can people incorporate more music in their life um, as a tool for healing? 
the, the single best way to do that is to grab your headphones and a piece of music that you love and sit down somewhere. I mean, sit down. Don't do it in your car. Sit down where you won't be disturbed. Put on that music and just be with that music and nothing else. If I could get everybody in the world to do that, I'd be real happy. Yeah, that's true. I I, I love it. I love it. This was such um, a great interview. That was awesome advice. I This was such a fun interview. I actually appreciate you coming on the podcast and reaching out to me um, and sharing all of your experiences. It was very insightful and interesting to know. Well, I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for uh, for being persistent <laughs> with the, our scheduling and everything and all the technical stuff that's in the world. I mean, it, it really makes a difference, and I, I do so appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. You must have a fabulous base of listeners, given all the things you've done. It's just what a privilege to be part of that. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so definitely feel free to come back on the Avian Filtered podcast whenever you'd like to and feel free to share definitely share your episode people oh you bet this is going out to everybody I know so as soon as it's ready we'll push it out there all right awesome awesome Bill thanks again and have a, a great day you great too, week Abby. keep doing the great work thank you you too thank you bye Ciao. Thank you, Bill Protzman, for coming on the show and for reaching out to me to be a guest on the show. This was such an amazing interview and very insightful. Um, it, it's just amazing to hear someone relating, you know, holistic health and music. They're not disconnected. A lot of people think they're disconnected and they're really, really not. Like it has helped me. I've had to help myself play the violin for myself when I was experiencing liver damage and doing certain techniques to get rid of that. So I just really um, thank Bill for coming on. And if you'd like to get in touch with Bill or um, want to experience his services, I will link his info in the description box, the show notes, <laughs> the description box. Um, and just subscribe, give it a review. If you like this episode, share it with someone who could really benefit, who's going through a tough time. Definitely help people. We're here on this earth to help people. So if someone's experiencing a rough time, please share this episode with them. And I hope you have an unfiltered day. Be authentic, be true to yourself, honor your spirit, and see you next week for another episode.